0: Uh, for a good portion of my life, uh, my family and I lived uh, in the deep woods of Winston, uh, Winston Oregon. We were a, a farming family, and we had owned four steers, 36 chickens, one pot-bellied pig, a yellow Labrador, and there was a bounty of fresh vegetables and fruit and starches. And there was this huge pod of peacocks. Now, has, has anybody been around peacocks? Yes. They're they're essentially beautiful rats. They're (laughs) disgusting. They're loud. They're intrusive. um, But we had to take care of them. That was part of what we had to do. Now one time, um, I'll never forget, I must have been around nine or ten years old, and I was sitting on my couch watching Darkwing Duck, and my siblings, my siblings came running up to the house screaming, banging on the door, screaming for me, screaming the words, um, one of the baby peacocks has died. And they were just, ugh. So I, being the oldest, sprang into action. I remember thinking, let's get dangerous. And I sprang into action. Like five of you got that. I popped on my rain boots and I ran down to the farm knowing exactly what I was going to do. I was going to bring this annoying little animal back to life. So I grabbed it by the neck, and I carried it over to where the steers lived. You see, the cows were surrounded by a very powerful electric wire fence. So I got on my knees, and I laid the baby peacock, lifeless, in the mud, and I grabbed with one hand the electric fence. And I grabbed with my other hand the chest of the peacock. I think I watched way too much ER as a kid. But I remember I could feel this pulsating energy through my body, surging through my veins into this lifeless bird. And for a brief moment, I was this channel of life. I remember I was thinking, I'm a human defibrillator kind of thing or whatever. And I kept screaming to the dark clouds above, his life isn't done! And I just was so amped. And so, you're never gonna believe what happened nothing. <laughs> nothing, nothing happened, not a zilch, uh, the bird's life uh, ceased to exist. But the point of that story. Uh, is I learned a lot that day. I remember to this day, as we buried that peacock in in the woods, I remember thinking about the mystery and the beauty and the conundrum and the fragility of life. I think we've all been thinking about that these last couple days. I was reminded very simply of just how nuts the idea of life is. See, for something to possess life, to have life, For something to create life. Or the tragedy of something even taking life. Which is easily the most precious anything that we have on this planet. Uh, A friend of mine sent me this quote this past week. And I have no idea who the author is. Maria, you sent this. But it says this. uh, You're a ghost. Driving a meat-coated skeleton made from stardust. uh, What do you have to be scared of? Very inspirational. Thank you for sending it. <laughs> I'm just joking. But she sent it. It was a joke because this quote is ridiculous. This quote is ridiculous, implying that life is basically bloodlines and molecules and bones. So basically, yellow, like whatever it is, do whatever you want. But for those who follow after Jesus, uh, life is beyond meat coated skeletons. See, life transcends far beyond just a a soggy noodle in our brain, or this pumping organ in our chest. I know there are people who are probably here right now who are far more brilliant than I am, and God bless you, who can explain the electric nerve endings that spark in each one of us and make us move and whatnot in life. But that's not what I'm here to debate or discuss. See, the day with the peacock, even as a child, I reflected and asked myself, what is it that gives life? Because clearly I couldn't. This fence is not working. So tonight, we look to understand life uh, but in a different color. Or it'd probably be better to say, look at life but just fuller. We seek to understand what Jesus has to say about life, what the Bible has to say about life. Because yes, on one hand there's life and then there's death and there's conscience and unconscious and there's cradles to coffins and meat-coated skeletons. But then there's Then there's living, right? Then there's living. There's what Jesus calls life and life more abundantly. If you're familiar with the Bible or not, just know that the Bible has so much to say about life. It has a lot to say about life. The purpose of it. The creator of it. The afterlife, the defeat of death, new life, abundant life, challenges in life, desiring others to know the source of life, the fragility of life, and the quick-passing vaporesqueness of life, and so on, and, and so on, and so on. So life's mammoth-sized questions, the thoughts I reflected on at, you know, the funeral of this peacock, how is life possible? How are we to live? What helps us in this life? What guides life? And again, what gives life? I believe those questions are fulfilled and answered within our verses today. And what we see very dramatically in our 13 verses is rather than just a what and how we're supposed to live life, it's who we're to live life with. It's who. See, some of life's biggest questions, like the ones I just rattled off, the Bible answers those with a person. See, not a formula or a rhetoric, a rhetoric or a hypothesis or not a hazy guess, but a person, a who. And that who is the Holy Ghost. Or a more widely known and accepted name, the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe you've heard of him in in some of his other titles that he has adorned over the ages and chapters of the Bible. Here's just a couple of them. Witness, the Holy Spirit has been called teacher, revealer, spirit of truth, intercessor, guide, convictor of sin, comforter, helper, counselor, advocate, author of scripture, and so importantly for tonight, he is the giver and spirit of life. He is the spirit and giver of life. See, whether Christian or not, it might be safe to assume that you've heard of this Holy Holy Spirit or this, this Holy Ghost. I even believe it's safe to assume Christian or not that for so many there can be this fog of mystery that surrounds him. So people for generations and centuries have been uh, defining and debating and discussing and dividing over the million-dollar question, which is, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is this Holy Ghost? What does he have to do with my life? What does his power and his presence and his personhood and his purpose have to do with me? To which I would answer and very professionally say every stinking thing. Now, tonight, you might hear me call the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, or the Spirit of God, and I'm going to use all these interchangeably. So what I'd like to do, Collective Church, what we'd like to do is basically do some groundwork, some very basic, basic work of who the Holy Spirit is and His role in the redemptive plan of God. To take three weeks, we're going to take the next three weeks, and just get the base coat on the canvas, so to speak. The book of Acts, which we only started four weeks ago, is filled with the Holy Spirit. The first 13 chapters alone have more than 40 references to the Holy Spirit. So all that to say is we're going to be talking about him a lot and fleshing out way more and more and more his character and his power and his gifts and his baptism or filling. But since our text for tonight really exhibits the outpouring on all followers of Jesus for the first time, on all followers of Jesus, for the first time, we're going to start here, very basically. So how we'll break it down is this week tonight, I will cover uh, essentially his personhood and his purpose, that being the point of Pentecost in so many ways. Uh, next week will be his power and presence within our lives. In the final week, we will discuss the, the practical effect of a life in the Spirit, or uh, a Spirit-filled church. But before we see His purpose and His power and His presence or the practical effects of a life in the Spirit, before we can even come to an understanding of life at all, both spiritual and natural, we must fall. Pay close attention. We must fall to our knees in awe. See, there, I feel there at times can be great harm done to our comprehension if we strive to see all that is complex, Simplified and simplified and simplified. To make this gloriously mysterious be compressed and compacted down to 140 characters. I mean, woe is me if I think I in my lowly state um, that I could ever perfectly and fully dissect the Holy Spirit. I can only exegete or expound as a teacher of the Bible on what the Bible has chosen to reveal about uh, himself, or excuse me, about the Lord himself. See, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, Christ the Son, are, I was thinking, they're like the cosmos. And we can only see fragments and glimpses with our limited scope. And even after millennium, after millennium, we will still be searching the wonders and depths of the heavens. I mean, how much truer is that for the one who created the cosmos? Uh, Old school uh, Dutch theologian, uh, Abraham Kuyper, uh, brings it down to earth for us by saying, uh, we know not what spirits are, nor what our own spirit is. So what is he saying? He's saying this. How far less competent then are we in understanding the spirit of God? If we feel comforted by that while simultaneously challenged, to that I would say, perfect. Perfect. That's perfect. See, this is where we all stand in trying to grasp the personhood of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's as scholar J. a scholar, J.A. Packer says, This is the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. It is not easy, uh, but it is true. Now, perhaps um, what furthers any mysteriousness of the Holy Spirit, of who the Spirit is, has got to be His name. His name or His title, right? The Holy Ghost is a very distant, uh, creepy, and almost abstract name. I like it, but I think it, some people... Eh. Um, and the name of the Holy Spirit isn't that much better. You see, with God the Father, we have an image, don't we? Or even an experiential understanding of who he is. He is fatherlike, He is is parental-like attributes. Then there's the Son, Jesus Christ. The title of Son, like Father. It brings us down to the sort of earthly understanding. So we can relate to the name and title of God the Father. We We can relate to the name of Son, Jesus Christ. But things might grow cold or odd when we speak the words, the Holy Spirit. Not in a Voldemort sense, like, don't say his name, but just like it might get a little <laughs> odd. But because of that, we lack in our finite minds of how to relate, because of his name, how to relate possibly to him, to fully to who he is. Um, I love minister and author Sinclair Ferguson's take on the name of the Holy Ghost. He says, it serves as a warning to us. That we should never confuse intimacy with chumminess. Our Christian relationship to God must never be devoid of an overwhelming sense of the sheer mystery of His being. Essentially, this name is a reminder of the awe and wonder and mystery that is God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, not a God, but God. See, not one third of God, but fully God. He is co-equal and a distinct person like the Father and the Son are, while there's only one God. And when we know this, and when we believe this, even if it makes our brain melt, the question of who He is finds its answer, not in some weird, like, mystical, spiritual substance, or chlorians, or not in an it, or a creature, or holograms in smoke. See, but in the forever truth that the Holy Spirit is God, The Holy Spirit is God, and He can be known. The Holy Spirit is God, and He can be known. Let's turn it up. The Holy Spirit can be God, and He desires to be known. Which obviously I believe that brings me to the question, very simply, is do you know Him? Not of Him, do you know Him? Christians, church, how would you describe your relationship with the Spirit of the living God? DTR it right now, how you, how you see Him. Do we wake up in the morning longing for His filling and power and presence? <clears throat> Excuse me. Is He like the air in our lungs or the blood in our veins? We need it. Uh, Evangelist D.L. Moody He says, you might as well try to see without eyes or hear without ears or breathe without lungs as to try to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. To not know him, to not live life with him, to ignore him, to chalk chalk him up as a a tool to be used or an experience is to remove so much of the purpose of what we have here in Acts chapter 2. See, our 13 verses, Pentecost cries out. Pentecost, what we're reading, it cries out. And do you know what it's crying out? Emmanuel. It is crying out, Emmanuel, that God is with us in the Spirit. As Christ from the throne of heaven, he is doused and poured on all followers of Jesus at Pentecost, the living and active, powerful Holy Spirit. I mean, I was thinking, the disciples in the upper room, they're, they're, their fingers are getting all pruny, you know, you, know, from one of the most important events recorded in the Bible. Friends do not miss this. This is epic. There has never been, nor will ever be, again, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all followers of Christ. There is no such thing as a second Pentecost. What we're witnessing is a one-time singular, uh, singular event that changes everything. I was thinking that the soundtrack to Pentecost is Bob Dylan's The Times Are Changing. And all that was involved, very simply, was just a little earth, wind, and fire. I don't know where earth comes in, but I wanted to make the joke. So wind and fire for Sure. Read with me uh, verse 1 again of chapter 2. I want us to get this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came uh, from heaven. Where did it come from? From heaven. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, these are, these are some plump and juicy verses. These are like gushers candy. If you, if we, want to know who he is and why he came, drawing out the meaning and truth of the symbols here is key. It is key. Now, just a preface before we cannonball sort of into fire and wind. Before we get into that, a grave danger with Acts 2, like so many verses and episodes of the Bible, but Acts 2 majorly, is to see these symbols and allow them to overshadow its purpose. See, this is part of the reason why we have chosen to call our series and our pilgrimage through Acts uh, archetypes. To take these archetypal truths of each text and apply them to our context. See, there's this theological rule when, when reading your Bible called descriptive and prescriptive. Very simple descriptives where the Bible describes something that's happened. See, we read a, you guys remember last week, we read a descriptive moment where the disciples were casting lots. The apostles were casting lots. Who will be the the 12th? Remember that? But then there's also prescriptive, prescriptive, where the Bible preaches for something for us to do. Trust in the Spirit and forgive one another and repent and be baptized. See, Acts is full of both. Acts is full of both. And the archetype here is what we're going to focus on. That being that these two symbols mentioned here, wind and fire, are most often associated with the presence of God. See, the God of the Christian faith is a God of wonderful, great presence. In our life, where things may be fleeting, transient, or coming and going, and lost and slipping away, God is present. It's a hard thought to grasp in such heavy times. And his presence is like that of a mighty wind and burning flame. And it's that very presence of God that brings life. It brings life. There's this uh, rocking vision in an Old Testament book called Ezekiel, where there's this valley, and it's beautiful, and you can read about it in Ezekiel 36 and 37. But it's this valley... And in the valley is filled, the valley is filled with bones. Dry, chalk white bones. But what do you think it is that brings them life? I'll read it to you. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Now, this wind mentioned in Acts 2 was a sound. It was like a sound of a heavy wind. wind. So we have a sound, but there's also something to see. Something as a fire. It wasn't actual fire, or the Bible would say, they are on fire. It says they were as a fire. It was like a fire. Which, again, is a very common experience within the Bible. I, um, I remember my... My grandfather, he was a fire captain for 33 years here in Southern California, and uh, my grandfather absolutely hated to talk about his day. He'd come home, and I'd see him in the morning. He'd come walking in, a, you know, after a, a night shift, and over you know waffles with strawberry and whipped cream. I'd be like, "Tell me about it!" You know, this little boy wanted to hear all about it, and he hated discussing it. But as I begged more and more to hear these stories of his his heroic adventures as a fire captain, when he did speak of it, when my grandfather spoke of fire, he almost always personified it. He would personify the fire. So he'd say things to me like this, how untamable he was, that being the fire, how powerful he was. He'd say, Casey, how unpredictable he was, how you are to respect him, That being the fire, Casey. How it demands your attention and reverence. See, if fire is here, we pay attention. Anybody at a campfire, and you ain't staring at the fire, something else is happening. We we pay attention. There is no ignoring fire. And surely that was the case for each individual who experienced the fiery presence of God in the very Bibles that you are holding. Think about this. I'm just going to rattle this off and just let your minds be blown. From Abraham, who envisioned the smoking furnace in Genesis 15 of God's presence, Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3 of God's presence. Then we have the fire that fell and consumed Elijah's altar with the prophets of Baal, the pillar of fire that led the Israelites by night, or when Solomon's temple was consecrated, the flood of fire that came from heaven. And then the fire that lit up Mount Sinai as Moses was receiving the law from God. And now, that same fire, which represented the presence of God, which represented the presence of the all-powerful, the the, the mighty, the cosmos-creating, sovereign, thunderous, and gentle, loving God. And one of my favorite poets says that John Berryman, he calls God the craftsman of the snowflake. He's a craftsman of the snowflake. That craftsman, that mighty God, is now resting where? On each person who confesses Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. I mean, come on. Are you kidding me? Church, this is a literal face melter. Like, literally. The person and purpose of the Spirit radically represented in those two symbols. I mean, it's this unbelievably brilliant theologian N.T. Wright once said, and this is so great, those in whom the Spirit comes to live are God's new temple. They are individually and corporately places where heaven meets earth. See, it is the Holy Ghost who is the breath of life, a mighty rushing wind, and He breathes life into us. It is the Spirit who makes us alive. He makes us spiritually alive. Think about it for a moment. What was it that created a new life in the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Luke 1. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, be called the Son of God. What was it that gave life to Christ's body in His resurrection? Romans 8. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to the mortal body through the Spirit who dwells in you. I mean, we become spiritually alive when we receive the Holy Spirit. And we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe on the good news of Jesus. And for some, it's an emotional experience. And for others, it's a quiet, alone-in-your-room experience. Or for others, it's a radical experience. And for some, it's a gradual process. But it's nonetheless, nonetheless, the Spirit that uses the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and gives life. He creates life anew, who regenerates our hearts. It's a Spirit, again, in the book of Ezekiel, where we, where we read, and I will give you a new heart. And I will, and I, and excuse me, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Epic. You see, this type of living, this type of life is what we have been, what, what we've been talking about. See, this is not the type of life where one can just shock something awake, you know, by holding onto a fence. The spirit is the only one who gives us life in Jesus. Now, maybe you're saying this. Maybe you're saying, Casey, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? I'm a breathing man. I'm a breathing woman. I'm a spiritual person. What exactly is the spiritual life you're talking about? Or maybe you're asking, I don't need the spirit to be spiritual, do I? The book of Titus in the Bible helps us understand. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Then, boom. I added that. Boom's not in the Bible. (laughs) Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us, and righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And here it is, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that was the answer to our question. Let me explain it. So Christians, because you have the Spirit, you have new life. You have new life, which means this. You have a new heart. You have a new nature. You have new desires, new loves, new purposes, and new hopes. When I came to know Jesus as my rescuer and redeemer, all of my sexual desires, all of my broken desires, all my fleshly desires were washed and renewed. Now, I'm not saying Christians don't experience temptation uh, to, you know, to continue in their old ways. Now there's always a temptation to, to stick this, you know, this IV in the corpse of our old ways but it's a spirit. But it's the spirit of God, the giver of life, that guides and convicts and corrects and helps and comforts every moment of every hour. See, the Christian life isn't easy. I still sin. Ask my wife. I still sin every single day. But it's the giver of life that sustains me. It's the spirit of God that sustains me. See, some of you may be hearing this now. Some of you may be hearing this now and you are so... Sick of your ways. You're over it. See, so you're sick and done with your addictions, your vices, and your bondages. You're exhausted. And after fighting them by yourself alone, there's another great defeat after great defeat. And where you maybe constantly and eventually stumble and trip and fall headfirst, yet into another exhausted, broken, state you're over it see it's as titus said we can do nothing we can do nothing again it's not me putting this hand you know my hand on the electric fence not because of works done by us see those here who don't confess jesus and have the seal of the Holy Spirit, who are broken and tired and weary of their life as it currently is, I invite you tonight to look to Jesus and all that he has done. If you want new hopes and new purposes, look to Jesus. If you're exhausted, look to Jesus. And allow the Spirit of God to place a heart of flesh a new nature and new hope within you. You need him I need Him. We can do nothing without Him. See, it's just as the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without wind. And this is where we stand as a church. This is where we stand as collective church as well. See, just as Genesis 2, where the Spirit had a role in the creation of the earth, we have Him here function in the creation of the church and he write again the holy spirit and the task of the church the two march together hand in hand we can't talk about them apart so just as the church was ushered in and sustained and empowered and given life by the spirit we believe that is happening today many commentators believe that this the pentecost is the birth of the church where the spirit is poured out on all and we have the first spirit filled community And then this is when we receive, you know, the power to be a witness, as Acts 1-8 says, to operate, to practice, to witness, and to be the church. See, you guys, it's verses and narratives like these that were a driving force on us wanting to teach through Acts as collective church gets started, to show us and to remind us that the church is more than some special social spiritual hour hangout. Or some religious hotel where you check in and check out. See, nothing about these verses, the birth of the church, nothing about these verses are, what can the church do for me? Peter stands up and preaches in a bit. He doesn't stand up and go, what can the church do for me? Programs and Thursday, there's nothing about programs and Thursday night pollocks. There's nothing in here with the birth of the church where it says, I prefer this preaching style over this preaching style. There's nothing in here where it says, I like this music and not this music. There's nothing in here about how convenient church is. You are like two minutes away from my house. You're my new church. Like, there's nothing in here about that. There's nothing in these verses about feeling comfy and comfortable at church. There's nothing in these verses. If there's a good gospel-proclaiming church that makes you uncomfortable, you should probably be there. You really should. The church is so, 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 so much more than that. The church is unlike anything this world has ever seen. The church is the one, Lorenzo says this all the time, and it, I, I love it. Every time he says it, I just want him to have like a, like a pulpit soapbox. He says the church is the one institution that Jesus started. See, He was just one of those entrepreneurs who was just like, I'm just going to do one thing and do it really well. It's the one organization that goes into eternity, the church. I'm really looking forward to in a couple of weeks when we wrap up this whole thing and we talk about a spirit-filled church. But may this charge and challenge us tonight that as we see the purpose of Pentecost, may we also be reminded of the purpose of the church, of why we are here witnessing on the west side, of why our commitments matter to the local church, God-defined commitments of why we're even a part of a local church. It's Acts 2, 5 that actually reminds us of all that the church is to do and be. Read verse 5. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. See, Pentecost was an extremely important festival, celebrating both the new harvest, but as well, this was a celebration of the law that was given on Mount Sinai. So tons of people are in Jerusalem right now for the festival of weeks of harvest. And we'll get into that more next week. But that's the point of reading devout men from every nation under heaven. Basically, Jerusalem is packed. It's like a Comic-Con right now. Like, it is packed. (laughs) Verse 6. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, verse 7 says, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in his own native language? And jump to verse 12. And all were amazed and uh, perplexed, saying to one another, (sighs) What in the world does this mean? Friends, let's ask the same question right now. What in the world does any of this mean? For them to hear these tongues spoken... And tongues, that time in the Bible, is a sign of the Spirit's filling. And when that happens, there's both earthly tongues, as we see here, people from different nations understanding. There's also heavenly tongues, which are these unintelligible languages, which the speaker, again, cannot understand, and it needs interpreting. But even more than that, what does this say about the church? What do these different languages say about the church? This is a powerful moment. Please get this. I hope this just blows everybody's mind. Um, There's a powerful moment here where we see what so many, it's been famously known as the reversal of Babel. Genesis 11 uh, records where man, you know, instead of going out, where man, instead of being sent out, they decided to go up and build a tower towards God. I'll read you just a few verses. It says this in Genesis 11. Come... Let us go down and confuse their language. This is God talking their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. So that is why it was called Babel, because because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. See, the reverse is this. Where instead of man ascending to heaven, the Spirit descends upon earth. Instead of no one understanding the languages now, we have nations and tribes from all over understanding and comprehending their words. So what does this say about those who follow Christ? What does this say about those who are infused with the power of the Holy Spirit? What does this say about the church? It's that the Spirit is for the nations. It's that the the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the nations. It's that the church... It's for the nations. That the church is full of people to be sent out. See, the church isn't a holy place to hide in. We all just hung out in here like a little bunker. This is, no, 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 no. The church isn't a place where, but a people who, and those people are to be sent out. Do you see your everyday roles within the classroom, with your children, stay-at-home moms, or whatever, You see your everyday role as a, as a techie, as an even greater role to introduce those around you to come to know life and life more abundantly. You are sent out to be Christ's witness, embedded missionaries in all contexts of life. This goes back to when Christ ascends to the throne of heaven. Do you remember this? Do you remember why he left? Why did Jesus leave? Leave? The gospel of John records this for us. He says it is far better for him to, for him to go. Jesus is like, I got to go. I got to get out of here so that we may what? Have the spirit. I'll just read a quick verse. This is in the gospel of John. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So the physical crisis sends, as we learned a few weeks ago. But we now, as the body of Christ, collectively, the church, continue to do his work with the same spirit. See, not just pastors, not just deacons or leaders, there's a mandate and commission for you and you and me and you and you and you. No matter how big or small, no, how, no matter how long you've been following Jesus or how short, no matter how naturally talented you are or not, no matter how many followers you have on whatever. Why? Because the Spirit that resides in each one of us as believers is the same spirit that resides in, the whole, in, in Jesus Christ. So, where do we go from here? We explored the purpose and the point of Pentecost, why he came to indwell in each one of us to bring power to give life, that he is God, the spirit, giver of life, present and residing in us. Where do we go from here? Well, I'd say the verses tonight show perfectly what happens, where we go from here. When the Holy Spirit is free to be who He is and free to do what He does, the results of that, the immediate effects of that are exactly what verse 11 says. Look at verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed. Not the mighty works of a church, Not the mighty works of a preacher or of a man or a woman or music or whatever. But when we come face to face with the reality of who the Spirit is to be in our lives, we every time will fall face down and proclaim the mighty works of God. That's a huge part of his character. The Holy Spirit has been called the shy one. Maybe you've heard this. He's the shy member of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I I mean, I see what they mean, but I feel that shyness can be so easily constituted with fear of others. See, the Holy Spirit, rather than maybe so much shy, is the Chandler to all glory, putting glory and worship and adoration in its rightful place. See, when the Holy Spirit is present, active in our lives, it enables us to give and to serve and to worship rightly, to sacrifice rightly, to not seek selfish gain. It burns, I was thinking it burns like, like the sun within the core of our chest that we can't help but sing and shout the mighty works of God. My friends, let's do that tonight. My friends, let's do that tonight. May we sing them, may we proclaim them, Proclaim them? may, may, we, may we cry them. May they allow, may they point us back to, to what is most important within this life. Tonight, remember, it is by the Spirit that we have life. And with that life, may we declare the mighty works of God.